0: Hello, and welcome to Scanning Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we'll provide summaries and discussion of some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles that we did not cover in this episode. Before we start, by the way, if you have any feedback or thoughts about this episode, feel free to email us at contact at last We would appreciate uh, hearing from you. Uh, with that out of the way, I'm one of your co-hosts, Andre Uh,
1: And I am your other co-host, Dr. Sharon Joe. And this week, we will discuss applications around how Meta is building the world's fastest AI supercomputer. We'll talk about uh, research that OpenAI is rolling out for their uh, new text-generating models, which are less toxic. On the ethics side of things, we will be talking about increased regulation of deep fakes. Um, And finally, on a fun note, we'll be seeing uh, the best game of Tetris you've ever seen um, by an AI. And with that, let's dive straight into our applications and business section. Our first article is titled, Meta aims to build the world's fastest AI supercomputer. So Meta, which is, again, the parent company of Facebook, uh, just released a statement that said they're going to build a research supercomputer, RSC, that's going to be the fastest, uh, among the fastest in the world. Um, and it'll be done by uh, mid-2022. Um, and, uh, you know, it is it's huge and they want it to work with neural networks with trillions of parameters, which we are just starting to see in research papers. Um what do you think uh, of of this, Andre? And uh, uh, also, what do you think of some of the details? Maybe you find those quite interesting, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a fun story for sure. Just looking at the details here, of you know, they're getting 16,000 NVIDIA A100 GPUs, uh, which is a lot of GPUs, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, that is a lot of computation. They're planning to process exabytes of data. I can't even. I don't know what an exabyte is really. Is that like after terabytes, a thousand terabytes? I don't know. Um, and yeah, they're they're saying they'll have like twenty fold speed ups on computer vision and three fold speed ups on natural language. So it's it's a fun thing, and it's not very surprising, I suppose, that Meta is doing this. I think. There's a fun detail uh, I know from Google. Like uh, a buddy of mine worked there. He said, without asking anyone, if you're just working there, you can get 100 GPUs to use as you want, <laughs> just for anybody. Well, I don't know if anybody, but anyone in data science or whatever. So, you know, these big companies have a lot of uh, compute infrastructure, and it makes a lot of sense with stuff like GPT-free that they'd
1: invest more in that yeah to that note actually um it's not like facebook will have the biggest uh super cluster um but it it will be among the the fastest with a 100s like that so uh it's it's exciting to to see that and also it, it points to what they're what they're focusing their stuff on i think it makes sense that they have you know, they have like technically edge technology with the VR headsets. I don't know if that's quite edge, but, uh, um, but yeah, they're going to be pushing towards, towards that and creating the metaverse.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's neat also to note that this is an AI research cluster in a sense that this is not just a general supercomputer. It's designed for ground up for AI. So how storage is uh, attached to the GPUs, how they communicate all of that is uh, pretty custom for this so ai kind of a big deal for uh, these companies turns out Uh, i wonder how much this will cost that would have been a fun number (laughs) to know Um, but uh, next up as far as uh, applications we have deploying machine learning to improve mental health so this uh, article has a sort of overview of this project Which is by uh, this person, Rosalind Picard at MIT, and the collaborator of Paula Pedrelli, who is an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. And so uh, these two people have been collaborating for five years. So uh, Pedrelli is uh, this. Professor of psychology, and uh, Picard is an MIT professor of media arts and sciences uh, and works on affective computing. And so they had this uh, five-year study, which is uh, started in 2016, so it's already uh, long into it, where they recruited uh, patients with a major depression disorder, and then they had them wear these uh, Empatica E4 wristbands. And so they collected a lot of data. They pick up uh, electrodermal skin activity and other biometric data, and uh, the participants can also download apps that collect these logs. And then they train, uh, you know, machine learning to predict these sorts of symptoms. So I think this is this is really cool. Actually, uh, I think it's often uh, kind of surprising that we don't have better technology to track our well-being with any sort of quantitative uh, measure. So I'd be excited to see if this works. Uh, what do you think, Sharon?
1: Yeah, I'd also be excited to see um, if, if this works. And these are uh, quite, I think, the power pair um, of uh, institutions uh, with MIT and um, MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, so I mean, I'm generally excited to see things in healthcare. I think this is um, a really uh, interesting, you know, take um, around this kind of continuous monitoring um, and uh, thinking about affective computing and seeing how that is, you know, emanating and and being deployed in in real real settings here. So, yeah, I'm excited to see yeah. where this goes. Definitely, yeah. And uh, I guess this
0: is uh almost over there on their fourth year of this five-year study so soon enough hopefully we'll find out i know i'm a big fan of my fitbit <laughs> tracking my steps and sleep and exercise so if we got uh, better fitbits that can uh, tell me my mood i would uh i would be a fan of that
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is connected to the kind of stuff Apple has been doing straight from the iPhone. Right. Um, So we're starting to see more and more wearables and non wearables, I guess, even just our smartphones being able to do some of this interesting uh, continuous monitoring uh, of our health. Uh, So I think this this makes sense uh, to be doing this study um, and is part of this larger trend. For sure. Yeah. And on to our research and advancements uh, articles. And our first one is titled OpenAI Rolls Out New Text-Generating Models That It Claims Are Less Toxic. All right, so you've heard about GPT-3, of course, um, which is their uh, text-based language model uh, that is, um, sorry, let me restart that text-based language model. And onto our research and advancement section. Our first article is titled "OpenAI Rolls Out New Text Generating Models That It Claims Are Less Toxic." So we know that GPT three has some problems around uh, spitting out toxic content over time, um, and uh, OpenAI decided to really tackle that um, by introducing uh, a new a new variant of it called Instruct GPT. Um, and what Instruct is, is it pretty much, um, tries to, uh, go from more of like instructions or things uh, you tell the model imperatively, um, to do, and then, um, figures out, you know, underlying, uh, the underlying uh, prompt to get it to generate whatever desired thing that you wanted from the instruction. Um, so as a result, they found that this uh, produced fewer untrue statements, also known as hallucinations uh, from the AI, and were able was able to follow instructions much better. Um, and I'll say anecdotally, uh, I think people have said that they it, it followed instructions better is higher fidelity, but there seemed to be at a loss of diversity. And of course, diversity is how you it's how you view it, I guess, um, in terms of like maybe sometimes that diversity could be really bad because it's spitting out toxic content. But of course, sometimes um, that means giving freer reign um, and more creativity to to what it is, uh, what it is saying.
0: Yeah yeah so this is uh, i think pretty pretty exciting i don't know if you would agree sharon um as we've said we've discussed sort of the problems that gpt3 has in terms of having sexist and racist and other kind of problematic things that it spits out and that's because <clears throat> you know it was just trained on all of the internet to do out complete right so it wasn't ever trained to do question answering or code completion, it was just trained to predict what comes next. Uh, and so that led to these bad things, where just the internet has bad things in it. And here, the key idea is fairly straightforward, but uh, still sort of is interesting, and that it worked, which is to just, you do that, and then you... Uh, have humans uh, provide these prompts, ask it to do stuff, and then other humans can rate different continuations, you know, different things that GPT-3 spits out. So it's now being trained specifically to align with sort of human feedback and being trained from human feedback. And the reason that GPT-3 can't do that is that it's not scalable, right? You need to collect a lot of human feedback in order to train anything. But in this approach where they're fine tuning it, um, it seems that it actually was feasible, uh, at least on the benchmarks, it still works well. I do wonder if some of this uh, loss of diversity is as a result of this extra supervised learning on a smaller data set. Uh, but I think it's, it's definitely nice to see OpenAI releasing this method and results and, you know, I'll be curious to see where they go next with this.
1: I think it's also great to see how um, a model like GPT-3 that was so generally trained can be easily modified into something like Instruct GPT. Uh because there are other models like T5 where a uh, language model where you do kind of give it a task and as and it, it goes and does it. And here at GPT-3, you know, it was so general, it wasn't really given a task except for next token prediction. Um, so it wasn't explicitly told to do anything multitask. And here we're kind of letting it align with how humans think about tasks and what we want the language model to do. And that can be adapted from the base GPT-3. Uh, And I think that's exciting because otherwise you don't want to be retraining models or training a completely different model from scratch um, to to help with that alignment. Um.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, One of the sort of big issues of AI is often we can't predict what uh, the models will do. And sometimes they might do something we would like them not to do. And uh, yeah, I've often thought whether we'll wind up with a sort of human in the loop kind of uh, situation where we can actually modify things on the fly to, to make sure that it's better. And, and this is at least hinting that that may be possible, with this sort of like just human evaluation of outputs uh, being enough to get from GPT-3 to instruct GPT. GPT. And on to our next story, we have meta-researchers build an AI that learns equally well from visual, written, or spoken materials. Uh, they didn't actually build an AI, they developed an AI algorithm, but okay. Uh, <laughs> so as the, as the title implies, it's this is all about an algorithm that, unlike uh, kind of what is usually the case, can work with multiple modalities in roughly the same way. So usually when we do machine learning, deep learning, the architecture is specialized to uh, whatever data format you have. So audio, uh, photos, text, these are all very different uh, forms of data in terms of, you know, how big they are, encoding, etc. And so the the neural nets typically are different and the training regimes are different. And that's been changing in recent years with Transformers. And, and now in this paper, the claim is that you have one algorithm that trains for these different modalities equally well using roughly the same architecture as well. And that's what they call uh, data to VEC, which is... Mm-hmm similar to GPT-3 and, and these other technologies, actually, in that it's trained via this self-supervised paradigm and they show that you can do kind of the same form of self-supervision as opposed to usually we're different for different modalities for these different things like uh, vision and speech and text. So uh, I don't think this is very surprising. Their approach itself is very intuitive, but as part of a strand towards unifying things, I I kind of uh, am a big fan. Uh, What do you think, Sharon?
1: Yeah, this is actually quite a generic approach, Um, but it completely makes sense in terms of uh, the direction of things uh, to learn embeddings that are modality agnostic um, and using uh, they use this mask, masking uh, in a student-teacher model um, for the for the student to learn from the teacher. Uh, so I, it completely makes sense. And also, in light of uh, Meta's other research on, you know, um, kind of the lip syncing uh, research that we touched on a week or two ago, um, it it makes sense that they're looking into uh, in, into these multimodal type models. Uh, and I think they. Very much makes sense for the products that Meta puts out. Definitely.
0: Yeah. And it's also, I suppose, part of the trend we've also discussed in general, where over the past year, and I think really at the present, there's more interest in tackling multimodality uh, in machine learning and deep learning. You know, as we've seen the flip, and since then, there's been a lot of work. And that is definitely like at the frontier of what is actually challenging and what AI cannot do. So I'm I'm excited that these big companies like OpenAI and Meta are very much focusing on it.
1: And on to our society and ethics section. The first article is titled, China Proposes Increased Regulation of Deepfakes and Other AI Synthesis Systems. Um, so the CAC, the Cyberspace Administration of China, uh, proposed uh, new regulations um, to uh, kind of uh, govern deep fakes or in more broadly, AI-aided synthesis systems. Um, and that also includes VR, Uh, That includes text generation, that includes audio, um, and uh, all sorts of subsectors of AI media synthesis. Uh, And so China does produce actually a lot of academic research in this space. Um, So it it is uh, quite uh, relevant, um, and it also is a dangerous area. Uh, And I'm very surprised, actually, (laughs) maybe I should be this arise, that the CAC that at cyberspace administration of China, uh, did invite citizens to participate in contributing comments on their, on their proposals. Uh, so I find that, you know, quite interesting and un China like, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's good. Um, it, it, I think it's good that they did that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is quite interesting. Uh, this article goes into, uh, this is quite a broad and uh, has a lot in it, where there is a scope that touches on six sectors. There's techniques for generating text content, technologies for editing voice content, for editing music, uh, face generation, editing images and video content, and even creating virtual scenes, such as video reconstruction. So basically any synthesis of media you can do with AI this is touching on which is fairly far-reaching and yeah I think it's it's cool or it's interesting to see this because we've talked a lot about sort of regulating deepfakes on and off over the years and a lot of people generally have thought about it but this goes well beyond that in a fairly reasonable way and yeah kind of maybe is, is interesting in that it shows that China in some ways is ahead of the U.S. Uh, as far as kind of predicting the impacts of uh, these technologies and, and regulating what the private sector could do.
1: Right, exactly. And specifically, uh, the draft proposal stated that they would obligate deep synthesis service providers to register their applications with the state, uh, so they would have to, you know, specify uh, and comply with all the necessarily necessary filing procedures. And so that's that's quite interesting to have to register uh, if you're going to be doing any of this technology. That seems to that seems to make sense um, in a way. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't know if something like this would fly in the U.S., but. No, that never <laughs> given, yeah, <laughs> no. Given debates, um, there has been, you know, there are draft bills uh, in Congress for it. And there's been some proposals for kind of doing uh, stamps on, on data origins. So something like this uh, may happen. I mean, we'll definitely need some sort of legal kind of framework for synthetic content. We have discussed how you can clone the voices of voice actors or their faces for ads. So you'll need some, like these things will need to be addressed as this broad idea of media synthesis. And yeah, I guess it's interesting to see China actually, like the cyberspace administration of China already have regulations. And it seems like maybe they're, tech departments <laughs> are a bit more advanced or up-to-date than we have in the US, uh, maybe not, I don't know. And on to our next society and concerns and ethics uh, story, we have IRS will require facial recognition scans to access your data, uh, your taxes from Xmodo. So. According to an IRS spokesperson, uh, our users with the irs.gov account will not be able to log in with a username or password but will instead need to provide a government identification document or a selfie uh, and copies of our bills to this verification company id.me. So, uh, yeah, this is interesting because you now need to, you can't just do username and password. Apparently, you need to show your face uh, to really verify it. And uh, there is an update in this article where it clarifies that most things you would need to do, like pay or file your taxes, you don't need to submit a safe, uh, selfie for. So, this is a little bit of a, you know, could bait article, not quite right. But still, it's interesting to see VRS incorporating this ID.me technology.
1: It's funny because this clickbait title really made the rounds, I think, (laughs) and people Mm -hmm. really reacted heavily to it. So, yes, it was successful clickbait, but in delivering potentially inaccurate news. So...
0: To be fair, the clickbait was because of a misleading quote they got from this IRS spokesperson. And it was later clarified that, um, yeah, that you don't need to log in, but to log in to this uh, website, to their account, I believe they still do need to use a selfie. So they can file their taxes online without their account, but to log into the account itself that this is still the case
1: that makes sense yeah but they didn't change the headline <laughs> but, <laughs> of course they have the most nuanced headline in the world so okay 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 i'm just saying i have a high bar <laughs> um yeah
0: yeah that's, that's a good point they say there's an editor's note just before but they didn't they didn't say we didn't change the articles, but so you'll need to access your taxes. It's kind of weird. Yeah, that's um, probably but yeah, it I guess is. more broadly that aside, I feel like I could see this becoming way more typical for logging in in general. You know, for phones we have our finger scans, and uh, for our phones we have facial scans already, right? For iPhones, and I wonder if like websites will start just doing this where you will need a password. Hopefully not, because that's not as secure, I'm pretty sure, but I guess who
1: knows. It'll be a cat, cat-mouse cat game, because uh, it will it'll be secure until, you know, people hold up a picture of someone else, and then you have to do like a video, and then people can hold up something else. So I, I think it'll be an interesting game, for sure. Mm. Yeah.
0: But uh, yeah, FYI, now the IRS did it, maybe Reddit will do it next, or Twitter, or whoever.
1: Nah, the IRS is always Uh, decades ahead of all the others.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's true. They are the first adopters. But uh, let's move on from the IRS and talk about our fun or neat or both stories, starting with Google AI tools bring back women in science to the fore. So this is a fun tool that Google has developed uh, to use by curators at the Smithsonian to uncover and highlight the many roles women have played in science that maybe have been overlooked so this builds on google arts and culture previous work where they scanned you know almost three million images from museums and made them appear, available to the public online and this new uh, thing basically enables a smarter sort of search and research in the smithsonian archives so it basically looks at uh, metadata, identifies the names of women, even when they haven't been explicitly pointed out. So for instance, sometimes there's a husband's name and also looking at image records to cluster and group together similarities. So it basically kind of gives you a richer view of kind of the the places where women have contributed, even though it may not have been apparent from just reading about the work. And yeah, I don't know. This is this is very cool. It's uh, nice to see Google having this arts and culture project that is doing these applications of AI that you know probably won't make for a big business, but are certainly very cool and, and useful in the context of this museum.
1: I think it can help them with branding a little bit. So maybe yeah. that's why. That's true. That's true. I suppose so. And I think it's someone's yeah. like 20% project or something like that.
0: Yeah, this is definitely you know, a smaller scoped project. Uh, but I don't know. If I were to go to a Smithsonian and see this kind of tool, I would definitely find it pretty pretty cool. So... Yeah, so it's nice to see um, this example that Google developed that I'm sure is very kind of robust and could be hopefully applicable to other museums and and other sort of archives.
1: Right. I've seen some museums actually start to implement some of these, you know, some AI techniques techniques. into their exhibits. And I think, I think that's fantastic. I love seeing that come to the fore. And I I also, I feel like see a lot of that on Twitter as well, uh, with a lot of AI artists, uh, becoming more and more prominent. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it'll be interesting to see kind of how museums can develop and, and change with AI and Certainly I believe that <laughs> from a data analytics approach, we could definitely learn a lot by having cameras and seeing you know what people are doing and, and maybe you know figuring out how to best present art. But yeah, changing exhibits with this sort of thing I think would be very cool and you know make museums more engaging, which certainly probably is a good idea.
1: Right, right. And on to our last article. Watch an AI play the best game of Tetris you've ever seen. So this is a little bit of a clickbaity title, but uh, someone did train uh, an AI model to uh, based uh, to play Tetris, but specifically uh, towards clearing four lines of Tetris as frequently as possible, uh, and that way the AI model will do pretty daring things uh like waiting for the Tetris board to add up quite a bit so that it can clear those four lines um but it gets quite a few points for that so you get extra bonus points for that
0: yeah yeah so it's it's a neat thing to watch you know there's a gif of it going uh sped up and it's you know doing fantastic and clearing all these levels and it's it feels nice to see this uh amount of success but Yeah, as far as an AI, this is very simple as far as AIs go. It's for the most part not even trained. It's just doing search and sort of looking ahead at at what's there and a little bit uh, learning. So what's good and not good. There's actually, um, just for a fun note, there's a channel called Code Bullet on YouTube that does this all the time. Uh, there's a lot of videos on his channel. So, for instance, one uh, video that he made last year is called "I Created an AI to Destroy Tetris," which uh, you know <laughs> does exactly what he says, but better. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. We'll link it. We'll link to it in the description. It's it's a fun video, and this channel, Code Bullet, in general, is quite fun. There's a lot of videos on developing. AI for different games, and it's informative and also entertaining. So, definitely a fun side project if you want to get into AI. This is a good way to start, uh, you know, building a Tetris AI, I suppose. Could definitely try that.
1: Yeah, definitely. It, it's funny because they are also very good at writing clickbaity headlines. <laughs> yeah, um, apparently,
0: yeah. This week we we got we got clickbaited, we fell for it. But
1: no 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 no, so, we're here to dispel clickbait.
0: That's <laughs> yes, true. We will let you know not to read his articles. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a fun thing to watch. This this uh, video also yes. has an accompanying um, YouTube video. Um, it's like twenty six minutes of AI playing the game and getting some. A ridiculously high score so fun little you know little thing
1: and before we go please let us know any of your thoughts you have directly to our email contact at lastweekin.ai and thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of skynet today's last week in ai podcast you can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at lastweekin.ai
0: And if you like this episode and the podcast, feel free to share it with your friends or with the social medias or leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes or just on your blog. You know, whatever you feel like, if you want to help us out, we would appreciate it. Help us out. Help (laughs) us out. You know, if you listen this far in... What are you doing? You know, <laughs> anyway, you ought to out. You don't have to. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, be sure to tune in to our future episodes and stick around.